We can do well in this country. We will have difficult times. We've had difficult times in the past. And we will have difficult times in the future. It is not the end of violence. It is not the end of lawlessness. And it is not the end of disorder. But the vast majority of white people and the vast majority of black in this country want to live together, want to improve the quality of our life, and want justice for all human beings that abide in our land. This was Robert F. Kennedy, and this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. Born November 20, 1925, as Robert Francis Kennedy, he was the seventh of nine children to Joseph P. Kennedy Sr. and Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy. The family was wealthy and his parents were members of two prominent Irish-American families in Boston. He's a younger brother of U.S. President John F. Kennedy. His father was wealthy businessman, a leading Democratic Party figure. His father would become the ambassador of the UK until 1940 when he stepped down. His older brother Joe Jr. was his father's focus to be the greatest of the greats and was expected to be president one day. But he sadly died in World War II, so this expectation fell on the second eldest, John. Robert and John wouldn't be overly close during childhood, but they connected through readings. Robert, being so young amongst the nine, constantly tried to get the older brother's attention, but with rare success. Robert was often alone, becoming interested in American history and an avid stamp collector. March 1938, Robert sailed to London with his mother and four siblings to join his father who was the US ambassador to the UK. He would attend a private school in England, and in 1939 he gave his first public speech for a youth club. Penned in his own handwriting, the speech was described as calm and confident. Robert would return to the US just before World War II broke out in Europe. September 1939, Robert went to a private preparatory school for boys in Concord a school his father was happy with, but his mother not so much. After two months, his mother pulled him from the school while his father was away and enrolled him in a Catholic boarding school in Portsmouth. Mourn his mother's religious ideas and had daily morning and evening prayers along with mass three times a week. Here he would be teased as Mrs. Kennedy's little boy Bobby. Robert was defensive of his mother and any comments made about her would he would defend strongly. Robert wasn't great at school and would fail to improve his grades. His mother would pressure him to improve, read more and expected more not to let her down. The monks at the school described him as moody and indifferent student being poor to mediocre in his studies except for in history. Now in September 1942, his father wanted Robert to go to Milltown Academy to prepare him for Harvard, so Robert was transferred there. Here, Robert became friends with David Hackett. He married Robert, found he would be tw try twice as hard if he wasn't good at something like sports, studies and popularity. 
The boys found the camaraderie in one another and were a bit of misfits going against the norm even if it wasn't accepted. At Milton his grades started to improve. Once in Milton, Robert pressed his father to allow him to enlist so he could be like his older brothers. Robert didn't try to get involved in Milton, often called Fella. He wouldn't take part in dirty jokes or bullying that went on. He would be described by the headmaster as very intelligent, quiet and shy but not outstanding and left no special mark on Milton. Within the family, Robert was called by his father the runt of the family. He was concerned of Robert's softness. To try correct this, Robert made a tough persona to hide his gentle side, at least in front of his father. As a child, he strived to meet his mother's expectations, to become dutiful, religious, affectionate and obedient. His mother loved this side of him but knew it meant he would be invisible to his father. She influenced Robert hugely, especially in religion. To impress his parents, he took on the paperboy job, which did impress them, but soon his mother found out he used the family chauffeur to drive him to do his job. Once this was found out, the delivery stopped. His father was happy with Robert as an adult, seeing he had become hard as nails, more like him than any other child. These conflicting views continued throughout his life. He would be seen by the public as ruthless, opportunistic, and would stop at nothing to attain his goals. While others seen him as the most compassionate public figure, the only one with the ability to save such a divided country at the time. So six weeks before he turned 18, in 1943, Robert enlisted in the US Naval Reserves as a seaman apprentice. His V-12 training began at Harvard in 1944 and he was relocated to Bates College, Maine, November 1944 to June 1945. He returned to Harvard in June 1945, completing his post-training January 1946. His older brother Joe died when he was, his bomber exploded in August 1944. From this, Robert became depressed for a time, having his fate questioned. In December 1945, the US Navy commissioned the destroyer USS Joseph P. Kennedy Jr. Shortly after, Robert asked to be released from the Naval Office training to serve on this destroyer. It was approved and he started February 1st, 1946 as a seaman apprentice. May 30th, 1946, Robert was honorably discharged from the Navy. September 1946, Robert went to Harvard. He would play varsity football after a lot of hard work. He would earn his varsity letter when he was sent, sent in by his coach while wearing a cast during the last minutes of a game against Yale. His teammates would describe and admire his physical courage and a fearless hitter. He once broke his leg during a game and kept playing. During 1946, Robert became active in his brother John's campaign for the US representative seat. Once discharged from the Navy, he joined the campaign full time. He graduated from Harvard in 1948 with a bachelor's degree in political science. Immediately after graduating, he sailed on the RMS Queen Mary with a friend to tour Europe.
and the Middle East as a correspondent for the Boston Post. He would submit first-hand view from Palestine before the end of the British mandate. He could be critical of the British policy on Palestine. He praised the Jewish people, calling them hardy and tough. He had, ho he had hoped Arabs and Jews could coexist peacefully, but feared the hatred between them was too strong and would lead to war. September 1948, he enrolled in the University of Virginia School of Law. He was elected president of the Student Legal Forum. June 17, 1950, Robert married Ethel Skeckel. He graduated law school in June 1951. Their first child, Kathleen, was born July 4, 1951. They would have 11 children in total. At the time of Kathleen's birth, Robert's brother John and his father weren't seen eye to eye and would have a distance between them. John and Robert weren't very close and this was the situation until Kenny O'Donnell, an American politician consultant, spoke to Robert to make amends between John and the father during John's Senate campaign. From this, his father saw Robert as reliable and willing to sacrifice himself for the family. September 1951, Robert went to San Francisco as a correspondent for the Boston Post. Here he was covering the convention that concluded the Treaty of Peace with Japan. October 19, 1951, Robert and John went on a seven-week Asian trip. Their sister Patricia also came along. They went to Israel, India, Pakistan, Vietnam and Japan. While on the trip, the brothers grew closer than ever before. November 1951, Robert, his wife and daughter moved to Georgetown and he started work as a lawyer in the internal security section of the criminal division of the US Department of Justice. Here he would prosecute income tax evasion cases. February 1952, he was moved to Brooklyn and worked as an assistant U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of New York. At this job, he prepared fraud cases against former officials of the Truman administration. June 6 that year, he left that job to manage his brother's, John, his brother's John's U.S. Senate campaign. John's victory was huge importance to the Kennedy family. It would rocket him to national promise and had John seen as a serious potential pres presidential candidate. December 1952, Robert's father was able to convince Senator Joseph McCarthy to appoint Robert as Assistant Counsel of the U.S. Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. Robert wasn't a fan of McCarthy's aggressive way of getting intelligence on suspect, suspected communists. July 1953, Robert would resign. From July 1953 to January 1954, Robert was, a, was at a low professionally and personally. He would be advised in 1954 to run for Massachusetts Attorney General, but Robert didn't go for it. Robert, for a time, helped his father on the Hoover Commission. In February 1954, he went back to the Senate Committee as Chief Counsel for the Democratic Minority. That same month, Roy Cohen, who was McCarthy's chief counsel, subpoenaed a lady by the name of Annie Lee Moss. 
She was being accused of being a member of a communist party. But Robert found out that Cohen called the wrong Annie Lee Moss. Robert would go to request a file on Moss from the FBI. J. Edgar Hoover, the FBI director, would be given a heads up by Cohen, so the request was denied. He would comment Robert was an arrogant whippersnapper. In 1955, the Democrats gained Senate majority. Robert became chief counsel and was a background figure in the televised, arm, televised army McCarthy hearings which looked into McCarthy's antics in 1954. During the hearings, Cohen was called. Robert would assist Democratic senators in ridiculing him, almost as a revenge for before. Tensions grew so high that Cohen wanted to fight Robert and had to be restrained. In 1955, Robert was admitted to practice before the US Supreme Court. 1956, Robert, his wife, and his growing family moved outside Washington. They moved to a house called Hickory Hill, which he bought off his brother John. Robert went to work as an aide to Adlai Stevenson during the 1956 presidential elections. Robert was also a delegate at the 1956 Democratic National Convention. He replaced Tip O'Neill, joining what was a failed attempt to help his brother John get the vice president nomination. After this, Robert had to make amends with J. Edgar Hoover, ordered by his father. This seemed to have worked, at least for the time, but once appointed Attorney General, Hoover saw Robert as a threat again. 1957 to 1959. Robert made his name known by serving as chief counsel to the McLean Committee. Robert was given control over testimony scheduling, areas of investigation and witness questioning. All this was done to direct the organised labour outrage to Robert and not to the chairman John L. McLean. Robert would square up to the Teamster Union President Jimmy Hoffa. Robert was to get information, discover financial realities like Hoffer misappropriated $9.5 million in union funds and also made corrupt deals with employees. Robert would be criticised for his outburst of anger and how he doubted the innocence of those using the Fifth Amendment. Complaints would be raised that the Kennedy boys were using the McLean Committee to their advantages, focusing on Hoffa and the Teamsters. Robert left the committee late 1959. Robert went to work on the presidential campaign for his brother John. The strategy was to win at all costs. Some didn't want John president or nominated, so some supporters of Johnson, who was also running for nomination, leaked to the press that John had Addison's disease, adding he had to have life-sustaining cortisone treatment. This was true behind closed doors, so Robert would try his best to protect his brother denying the allegations. Once John got the nomination, he extended the vice president's spot to Johnson. Some supporters of John didn't agree with this move, leading to Robert trying to convince Johnson to turn the offer down, which he didn't. So Robert would try to change John's mind to Labour leader Reuter. This also failed and John made Johnson his running mate. 
In October, Robert was able to secure the release of Martin Luther King Jr. from a jail in Atlanta. John Kennedy won the elections, becoming the 35th president of the U.S. John would choose Robert as attorney general, which was very controversial as many thought he was too young, inexperienced and nowhere near qualified. But Robert was a hardy novice. He gained experience investigating and questioning witnesses while at the Justice Department and in the Senate Committee Council. There are speculations that Robert got the position because his father demanded it and that John and Johnson didn't actually want him. Robert Nowin would play a huge role helping John form his cabinet. Robert would become John's closest political advisor. As such, Robert played a crucial role in the events around the Berlin Crisis of 1961. Using private back channels, Robert connected with George Bolshakov, a Soviet spy. Through this, he was able to relay important messages between the US and Soviet governments. This would lead to the Vienna summit being set up in June 1961. Later, it helped defuse the tank standoff with Soviets at Berlin Checkpoint Charlie on October 1961. As Attorney General, Robert would go on missions against organized crime and the Mafia. Convictions against organized crime figures went up 800% in his term. Robert tried hard to shift Hoover's focus from communism to organized crime. According to some, Robert's success in this was thanks to his brother's position. Hoover wasn't a fan of Robert, mainly because he couldn't control him. Robert was determined to pursue Teamsters Union head Jimmy Hoffa because he was known to be financially and electoral corrupt, both in personal life and in organisation. A so-called Get Hoffa squad of prosecutors and investigators were created. The relationship between Robert and Hoffer was not good. It was intense, personal pop shots, jabs, insults, and sometimes threats. Hoffer called it a blood feud. March 4, 1964, Hoffer was convicted of attempted bribery of a grand jury in his 1962 conspiracy trial. He was sentenced to eight years and a $10,000 fine. Hoffer would get out on bail during his appeals. While out, he was convicted in a second trial, July 26, 1964. This time, charged with one count conspiracy, three counts mail and wire fraud for improper use of the Teamster Pension Fund. This, he was sentenced to five years. He spent three years appealing both convictions, but March 1967, he began his 13-year sentence. J. Edgar Hoover was against communism and didn't like Martin Luther King Jr., calling him a troublemaker and the enemy of the state. In February 1962, he went to Robert with allegations that some of King's closest confidants were believed to be communists. Hoover wanted approval to monitor King. Robert would warn King to maybe distance himself from these suspected, but he didn't fully cut ties. In October 1963, Robert gave approval to wiretap King and others. Robert approved one month, but Hoover did it until 1966, which was revealed in 1968, just days before Robert's assassination. 
Robert was really behind the civil rights, so much so that in 1962, it seemed it was all he did. From prosecuting corrupt Southern electoral officials to speaking to Coretta King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s wife, late at night calls about her husband's arrest for demonstrations in Alabama. While Attorney General, he made it his mission to desegregate the administration at Capitol Hill. He wanted every area of the government to have blacks and ethnic workers. But the relationship between the Kennedy boys and civil rights activists weren't strong or good. Both Kennedys, though, would agree and see seeing the urgency on the matters of civil rights. Robert's insistence would result in the famous JFK speech June 1963 that addressed the nation on civil rights. Robert played a role in the response to the Freedom Riders' protests. He would act after the Aniston bus, bus bombings, protecting the riders. He would send John Sigenthal, his administrative assistant, to Alabama in a bid to have the riders safe. A work rule would give the bus driver the right to not take an assignment if they felt it posed a risk to themselves. But Robert was able to get the manager of the Greyhound Corporation to organise drivers willing to drive a special bus for the Freedom Riders from Birmingham to Montgomery. After this, an attack and burning of a First Baptist Church happened by a white mob. Here, Martin Luther King Jr. and 1,500 others were in attendance. Robert called King asking to remain where they were until the U.S. Marshals and National Guard secured the area. King would tear into Robert, arguing that he allowed the situation to continue. Later, King publicly thanked Robert for his efforts, breaking off the incident that night or he himself would have been killed. Robert got safe passage for the Freedom Riders to Jackson, Mississippi, where they were arrested. Robert offered to pay the bills for them, the bail for them, but the group declined. This decline would upset Robert a lot. There was a reason to end the Freedom Riders early, other than a civil rights. A summit was coming up with Khrushchev, Khrushchev, and Charles de Gaulle. Robert saw the international publicity of the race riots would mark the president as he headed into international negotiations. Because of this curtail of the freedom riders, it iced out many civil rights leaders who already taught the Kennedy boys as narrow-minded. So to improve race relations, Robert held a private meeting with black delegation coordination James Baldwin in May 1963. September 1962, Robert sent U.S. Marshals and U.S. Border Patrol to Oxford, Mississippi to enforce a federal court order allowing the first African-American, James Meredith, to attend the University of Mississippi. Robert's hopes were that the legal means of federal officers would be enough to make Governor Barnett allow Meredith in. He had concerns of what he described as a mini-civil war would happen between federal officers and armed uh, protesters. The situation did indeed turn violent, which forced John to send in federal troops. 
Riot surrounding Meredith and Mrs. had 300 injured and two being killed. Robert remained firm that all black students had the right to the educational system. Robert saw voting as the key to racial justice. He, along with President Kennedy and Johnson, created the landmark Civil Rights Act of 1964. This brought an end to Jim Crow laws. From December 1961 until December 1963, Robert also grew the U.S. Department of Justice Civil Rights Division by 60%. Robert would be his brother's John's anchor and confidant. Robert oversaw the CIA's anti-Castro activities when the Bay of Pigs invasion failed. Robert would develop the strategy during the Cuban Missing Crisis to blockade Cuba. Many say Robert knew of the plan by the CIA to kill Fidel Castro. The Family Jewels document, declassified by the CIA in 2007, suggests before the Bay of Pigs invasion, Robert, Attorney General, personally authorized one such assassination attempt. But there is evidence against this. During a briefing, May 7, 1962, it came out that Robert directed the CIA to stop any efforts at Castro's assassination. Robert served as the president's personal representative in Operation Mongoose, the covert operations program after the Bay of Pigs. Mongoose was to incite a revolution in Cuba against Castro to have him removed. In the Cuban Missile Crisis, Robert proved to be a great and gifted politician with a strong ability to compromise, cool aggression and remain calm. The trust the President placed in Robert in this crisis is seen as a game changer and one that avoided an all-out military war between the US and USSR. Washington 1961, President Kennedy met Japanese Prime Minister Akita. He promised a visit over to Japan in 1962, but with the decision to resume atmospheric nuclear testing, this would have him postpone the visit, sending Robert instead. Robert and his wife arrived February 1962 in Tokyo, a time which was very sensitive in the US and Japanese relations. Robert would win over Japan with his happy, honest, sincerity and young energy. He would score public points in televised speech at Wasada University, Tokyo. When Marxist students activists tried to shout him down, he calmly asked one to come on stage for a debate rather than a shouting match. His calmness under tension and willingness to engage rationally won many admirers in Japan and had him praised in the media. When his brother John was assassinated in Dallas November 22, 1963, Robert was at home. A phone call came from J. Edgar Hoover to tell him about John's death. He would inform Robert John was shot and he hung up before Robert had any chance to ask any questions. Robert later remarked that he felt Hoover actually enjoyed telling him the news. No time to grieve, Robert kicked into work mode. He called Mayor George Bundy at the White House to have the locks changed on the President's files. The Secret Service he ordered to dismantle the Oval Office and Cabinet Room's secret taping system. 
He then met with John McCone, CIA director, asking him straight out if the CIA had anything to do with John's death. Obviously, McCone denied anything. Later, Robert spoke to investigator Walter Sheridan. He said when he questioned McCone, the wording of his answers made him believe that he didn't have any involvement. It took Vice President Johnson an hour after John's death to call Robert. Robert remembered the call starting off with Johnson sympathetic, but quickly changed to the topic of being sworn in immediately. Robert was opposed. To him, John left as president and should return as such. But he changed his mind and Johnson was sworn in before returning to Washington. Robert always believed he would be the one to be killed and not John. Jackie, John's wife, was there when John was killed and wanted a closed coffin. Robert didn't like the idea. He wanted a traditional funeral with a coffin open. But when he saw John after his death and the cosmetics done, this had him agreed with Jackie. Such was the extent of John's injuries. In 1964, at a Democratic Party convention, Robert was asked to introduce the film to leaders about John. When introduced, the crowd, which included party heads, elected officials and delegates, all rose and applauded thunderously, most tearfully, for nearly 25 minutes before Robert could speak. During it, Robert came close many times to breaking down. He spoke about John's vision for not only the party, but the nation. The Warren Commission investigated John's assassination for 10 months. They concluded Lee Harvey Oswald did it and did it alone. Robert issued a statement in September 1964 in it, he stated he was convinced Oswald did it and acted alone. He was a rebel who couldn't get along in the US or Soviet Union. He continued mentioning that he hadn't read the report, nor will he, but he was briefed on it and was happy every lead and piece of evidence was looked at. However, in 1966, Arthur Schlesinger Jr. met with Robert and according to him, Robert thought the report was poor and he wouldn't endorse it. He wouldn't question it though because doing so would have it reopened, which meant reopening wounds and memories all exposed again. Others though said when they spoke to Robert, he said he never doubted it. In 2013, CBS journalist Charlie Rose interviewed Robert Jr. He said his father was fairly convinced others were involved and not just Oswald, and privately said the report was a shoddy piece of craftsmanship. Robert was hit hard by John's death. He pulled away and questioned more. He also became more aware of death, how quick it came to anyone, any age, without an illness. With Johnson's move to president, the vice president position was now open. Robert would be seen as the candidate for it in 1964 elections. Many called for him to do it as a nod to his brother John. Poland showed three-quarter Democrats liked the idea to be Johnson's running mate. Robert spoke to Schilsinger about it and Schilsinger advised him to develop his own political base before going ahead. Robert felt 
from John's murder that the position of vice president was basically waiting for someone to die. In his first interview after John's assassination, Robert said he wasn't considering the role. Robert also would say if those still involved didn't fulfill and follow his brother's program, he wouldn't want anything more to do with them. But Robert did begin low-key inquiries in 1964 for the position, and by summer 1964 he was developing plans to help Johnson incentivize based of campaign strategies from his brother's campaign in 1960. Despite the enthusiasm within the party of Robert, Johnson wasn't convinced. The pair weren't in great terms, with Johnson saying, quote, I don't need that little run to win, end quote. And Robert would say Johnson was, quote, mean, bitter, vicious, an animal in many ways, end quote. Johnson toyed with the idea of nominating Sergeant Shriver, Robert's brother-in-law, but the family quickly quashed that idea. Johnson was advised to gain the Catholic vote he needed a Catholic. VP, and Robert was the guy. Johnson would ignore this and chose Hubert Humphrey. Johnson felt choosing Robert would have votes for having a Kennedy, and he wanted to know he could be voted on his own. July 27, 1964, Robert was called to the White House. Johnson told him that he was not choosing him for his running mate for VP. Angered, Robert declared, I could have helped you. To add salt to the wound, Johnson requested Robert to tell the media he decided to drop out, a request Robert refused, saying to Johnson, do it yourself. Johnson looked for a way to announce the decision without looking mean or personal. Clark Clifford, Democratic power broker, met with Johnson in the Oval Office. Unknown to him, it was recorded. He told Johnson to take a, polic a policy approach stating he wasn't choosing from his cabinet, sort of wanting fresh eyes approach. Johnson, though, thought this was wishy-washy, a bit of a cop-out excuse, but Clifford pushed, saying it was better than nothing. July 1964, Johnson issued an official statement, letting it known no one from the current cabinet would be his running mate. His reason or excuse was a fake, they all were so valuable in the current positions. From this, mountains of anger letters poured into it. Not only Johnson receives him, but also his wife, Ladybird. The letters were angry and disappointed that Robert wasn't chosen. Johnson's worried delegates would draft Robert anyway, so Johnson ordered the FBI to watch Robert, his contacts, making sure he didn't speak until after Humphrey was confirmed as the running mate. Once announced, Johnson met with three journalists off the record. Here, he celebrated freeing himself from Robert. He went on to mock Robert's voice and mannerisms. This got back to Robert, who demanded an apology. Johnson denied it all and refused to apologize. Johnson met with Secretary of State Dean Rusk, both were concerned of Robert's ambition. They were concerned Robert using his brother's death to sway delegates getting him the nomination. But a poll in 1964 showed a block Democrats from the site wouldn't vote Democrats if Robert was chosen.
Democrat leaders opposed now Roberts' nomination, so this solid and reliable Democrat block of voters weren't cut out. At the Democrat National Convention, Robert came on stage to cheers and applause for 25 minutes. When silent, Robert gave a speech, which ended with an extract from Romeo and Juliet. Quote, When he shall die, take him and cut him out in little stars. And he will make the face of heaven so fine, that all the world shall be in love with night and pay no worship to garnish sun. End quote. Applause erupted, people stood cheering, amongst them was Johnson, who knew the garnished son was a jab at him. Nine months from John's death, Robert left cabinet to run for a seat in the US Senate. He announced this on August 25th, 1964. He had thought about doing this earlier that year, but was also considering the position of governor of Massachusetts or leaving politics altogether. Robert remained because of the positive reception he received in Europe. September 1st, Robert got to go ahead to run for the New York State Democratic Committee, despite the mixed feelings about his candidacy. Johnson, though, gave support to his campaign. Robert's opponent was Kenneth Keaton, who would call Robert arrogant. Robert could have ran, could have ran for Massachusetts, but chose not to because his younger brother Ted was running there for re-election. Robert would go on to win New York. Robert drew attention in Congress for being the brother of the President. June 1965, he'd give a speech on nuclear proliferation, drawing more than 50 senators as spectators. But coming from President's right-hand man to one of a hundred senators, his power wasn't as great and he also showed impatience with collaborating lawmaking. But he was known in the Senate as being well prepared for debate, with a tendency being blunt, making him not so popular. At the Senate, Robert advocated gun control. May 1965, he co-sponsored S-1592, which put federal restrictions on mail orders gun sales. The S-1592 and other bills, along with the assassination of King and Robert, paved the way for the Gun Control Act of 1968. February 8, 1966, Robert was urged the US to pledge not to be the first country to use nuclear weapons against other countries. June 1966, Robert, his wife Ethel and his aides visited South Africa. The tour was greeted with praise when few dared to entangle themselves with South Africa politics. Robert spoke out against the oppression in the country and was welcomed by the black population. At the University of Cape Town, he gave the annual Day of Termination Address. On his memorial, a quote from the speech is engraved, quote, Each time a man stands up for an ideal, or acts to improve the lots of others, or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope, end quote. As Senator, Robert set up a redevelopment pro project in poor area in Brooklyn. He would find difficulty getting support from Johnson, something that happens repeatedly. Robert would visit Mississippi Delta, reviewing the effectiveness of war property program, especially the Economic Opportunity Act 1964. Robert would be noted as being deeply moved and outraged by the starving children and the appalling conditions. Robert would speak to civil rights activists and children's rights 
Marion Wright Elderman, to get Martin Luther King Jr. to bring the poor to Washington to make them visible and not hidden, leading to the creation of the Poor People's Campaign. Robert wanted to sort the poor issue through legalization to encourage private industry to locate in poorer areas, creating jobs for those in the area, making it clear work was more important than welfare. Robert worked on the Senate Labour Committee when the workers' rights activist of Cesar Chavez was happening. Robert went to California to see what was going on. Before Robert went, little attention was given to the subject, but with Robert's arrival came the media. Robert was shocked at the working conditions and seeing they were taken advantage of. Chavez would stress to Robert, migrant workers are human beings. Later, Robert would confront the sheriff, Galen, criticizing his deputies for taking photos of people on the picket line. Robert was popular with the African Americans and other minorities. He spoke in favor for what he called the disaffected, the impoverished and the excluded. From this, he linked himself with leaders of civil rights wanting to eliminate discrimination on all levels. Robert supported the desegregation, busing, integration of all public facilities, Voting Rights Act 1965 and anti-poverty social programs to increase in education. During John's administration, he backed the US involvement in Southeast Asia, but Robert wasn't involved in these discussions. When Robert entered the Senate, he kept his feelings of disapproval of the Vietnam War quiet. Robert would have supported John's efforts, but never commented about troops on the ground. Robert wasn't happy regarding the bombing of North Vietnam, February 1950, 1965, but he didn't want to once again look to be against Johnson's agenda. But April 1965, Robert wanted to halt the bombing which Johnson did for a few months. Robert warned Johnson against sending combat troops, which fell on deaf ears. July, Johnson agreed to a large American ground force to Vietnam. Robert called for a settlement through negotiations. December 1965, Robert spoke to a friend, Defense Secretary McNamara, to try counsel Johnson to declare a ceasefire in Vietnam to do a bombing pause over the north and take offer by the Algeria to serve in the peace talks. Algeria had friendly relations with North Vietnam and in 1965-66 they were willing to help with peace talks, but Johnson's advisors weren't so keen. February 1966, Robert released his peace plan for South Vietnam by allowing the National Liberation Front or Viet Cong to join a coalition government in Saigon. The peace plan made front page news. Tensions still mounted between him and Johnson. April 1966, Robert met with Philip Heyman to discuss efforts to secure American prisoners of war in Vietnam release. Robert wanted Johnson to do more, while Heyman believed sitting down with Viet Cong was more important than getting prisoners released. August, Robert's popularity was outpacing Johnson's. Robert was credited for his efforts to end the Vietnam conflict, which by then the public wanted it over too. Early 1967, Robert went to Europe where he continued to talk about Vietnam. A story leaked that Robert was looking for peace, but President Johnson wanted war.
Once uh, Johnson was now convinced Robert was out to get him. They met and Johnson told Robert he was think what he was thinking. Robert calmly spoke about how European leaders were on his thinking to pause the bombing, but Johnson again ignored the advice. March 2nd, Robert outlined, outlined a three-point plan to end the war. The plan was thrown out by Dean Russ, Secretary of State, who believed North Vietnam wouldn't agree to it. November 26, 1967, Robert appeared on Face the Nation. Robert would say how Johnson's administration had deviated from his brother's policies in Vietnam. He would say the view that Americans were fighting to end communism in Vietnam was immoral. March 14th, Robert met Defence Secretary Clifford regarding the war. Clifford noted Robert was offering not to enter an ongoing Democratic presidential primary if Johnson admitted publicly he was wrong regarding the war. Johnson obviously rejected this, and on June 4th, hours before he was shot, Robert still spoke about wanting to change policy towards the war. In his 1968 campaign brochures, Robert stated he didn't support withdrawal or surrender inside Vietnam, but was instead looking for a change in the course of action taken to bring about honourable peace. 1968, President Johnson prepared to run for re-election. In January, Robert stated he would not seek presidency. Robert went to California to meet Chavez, who was on a 25-day hunger strike. While here, Robert decided to challenge Johnson for the presidency. The weekend before the New Hampshire primary, Robert spoke to his aides about trying to get Senator Eugene McCarthy to drop from the race. But Senator McGovern advised Robert to wait until after primary and then announced his candidacy. Johnson won New Hampshire in March 1968. This close loss added fuel to McCarthy's hopes. March 16, 1968, Robert announced his candidacy. McCarthy's followers would call Robert opportunistic. Robert's announcement would split the anti-war movement in two. March 31, 1968, Johnson announced he was dropping out, an announcement that stunned the nation. Vice President Humphrey then entered with financial backing and critical endorsement from Congress, mayors and governors. Humphrey would enter too late too late to even enter any primaries, but he had the support of the president. Robert went the same route as his brother to win nomination through popular support in the primaries. Robert ran on a platform of racial and economic justice. One was non-aggression in foreign policy, decentralization of power and social change. His objectives didn't sit well with the business community. He was intense and frank in his dialogue. His campaign split the people into excited and angry. His message of change gave hope to some and sent fear into others. He visited many small towns and made himself available to the masses. He made urban poverty a big topic of his campaign that led to huge crowds attending his events. April 4, 1968, Robert was told about King's assassination which led him to deliver a heartfelt speech calling for a reconciliation between races. In it was also the first time he spoke publicly regarding his brother's killing. From King's death, riots broke out, but not in Indianapolis, 
which is where Robert gave his speech, and many believe because of his speech no riots happened that night. On April 5, 1968, Robert gave the famous On the Mindless Menace of Violence speech to the City Club of Cleveland. Robert, along with his brother Ted and John's widow Jackie, attended King's funeral. Despite Robert's profile and being known, McCarthy won most primaries early on, including Robert's home state of Massachusetts. Robert won Indiana on May 7th and Nebraska on May 14th, but lost Oregon on May 28th. Robert had to win California to knock McCarthy out and set up the race against Humphrey. Robert went and won California and South Dakota on June 4th. He would address supporters just after midnight on June 5th, 1968, in a ballroom at the Ambassador Hotel in LA. When he left, he went through the kitchen area as he was told it was a shortcut to the press room. His bodyguard would advise against this, but Robert ignored. In the kitchen's passageway, Robert shook hands with busboy Juan Romero. As he did, Sirhan Sirhan opened fire hitting Robert three times and wounding five others. George Plimpton, Raffer Johnson and Rosie Greer tackled Sirhan to the ground. Robert lay dying in Romero's arms, who placed rosary beads in Robert's hands. Several minutes later, medical attendants arrived. Robert was conscious, but soon wasn't. He was rushed to hospital and despite the efforts of the doctors, Robert died at 1.44 a.m. June 6th, 26 hours after being shot. Much like his brother's assassination, Robert's is also subject to conspiracy theories. His body was taken to Manhattan and lay in St. Patrick's Cathedral. The service was huge and attended by family, friends and political figures. After his body went on a private train to Washington, D.C., Thousands of mourners lined the tracks and stations, paying their respects. The trip should have taken four hours, but took double the time, due to a train accident that killed two spectators and injured four. He's buried close to John in Arlington National Cemetery. Due to the delay, Robert's burial was done at night, the only night burial to ever take place at Arlington. June 9th, President Johnson co-signed security off to all U.S. presidential candidates and declared an official national day of mourning. After Robert's assassination, the mandate of U.S. Secret Service was changed to include protection of U.S. presidential candidates. In the months and years after Robert's death, numerous roads, schools and other buildings across the U.S were all named after Robert in his honour. Thank you all for listening. Next time I'll be looking at the Hindenburg disaster. Happening May 6th, 1937, the German passenger ship Hindenburg caught fire and was destroyed during a docking attempt. 35 fatalities, 13 of which were passengers and 22 crew, with another one on the ground. The publicity would destroy the giant's airship credibility, marking the end of the airship era. Multiple theories as to what happened, all could have been a cause, but there's never been a full solid conclusion. Until then, this was the good, the bad and the pure evil.